And we are back after a long time of not recording with uh, the man of the hour, Mr. Paul Wilson. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. A long hiatus. Yes, a very long hiatus. So you haven't posted anything in the last seven weeks? No, no, I have been posting. Oh, just yeah. That last episode we did was like six episodes oh, that I just chopped up. Little snippets of pearls of wisdom. Yes, I'm sure that all of those people who complain about the length of the episodes have <laughs> they been enjoying. They don't complain, they comment. No, they complain. <laughs> yes, apparently we don't use the word complain or what we do wrong. It's always opportunities. But anyways, yeah, no, I chopped them all up. And so I'm sure people were happy with some shorter episodes and more pointed questions, though. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah. So I've been gone for uh, seven weeks. I was on a sabbatical. Yeah. How was that? It was awesome. I had a good time. Um, the point was to get away from everything for a while and create some space and get some uh, rest and uh, recreation to sort of replenish my soul. Yeah. So um, got to do that. Got to spend some time at in in Pennsylvania, which is home to me, um, visiting my parents and my sister and. Um, which means getting spoiled by my mom. She makes all the foods that I love. And so that was good. And then I uh, got to do a race while I was there and um, did a half Ironman. And then I uh, spent nearly a month uh, exploring what's called the Grand Circle, which is um, a series of uh, six national parks out in Arizona and Utah. So it was a solo trip for me. I drove out there and camped and hiked and it was, it was a great time. Absolutely beautiful scenery that I got to enjoy some really challenging hikes. Uh, the biggest challenge being that it was a historical stretch of 110 degrees mm -hmm. plus in that area of the country at the time. So I did a, one day I did a hike to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and it was 117. It was miserable. My gosh. Yeah. But, um, really enjoyed that time alone, that time away. And, um, again, just doing things I love to do. And I have a certain contemplative nature to me and a certain, um, also for you normies, that is me. That word is contemplative. <laughs> contemplative. <laughs> um, I'm a bit of an explorer and wanderer. So, um, Having time alone, um, was really good for me. Yeah. Then I, I came home and, um, went up to Dallas for a few days and hung out with a really good friend of mine and went to some Rangers games and ate some great food and had some good laughs. And then I spent the last week here at home working on a project that I'm tackling at, at our house. And now I'm back in the saddle. It's funny. I. There was a point to which I was really worn out and I thought, man, this sabbatical is never going to get here. <laughs> and then suddenly it was over and I was back in the shop and, um, but it was good. It was a good time for me. And, um, I was just working through some questions in yeah. my life and listening to what I believe to be the voice of God in my life and trying to get some clarity and some direction. So it was good. Good. Yeah. Well, we're glad to have you back and I'm really glad that it went well. Um, and it, this isn't what we're talking about today, but maybe you can just kind of quickly give folks an idea of what a sabbatical is because 
even like my own family was like, I don't understand. Where's Paul going? <laughs> and I was, and so I had to like, and I, and I told them what, you know, kind of what I thought it is, but just people listening, like, yeah, why, or what is it that pastors, like, what is a sabbatical? Yeah. It's interesting. I think if I know my, my history correctly, a sabbatical is really comes out of academia. Um, professors, um, are granted sabbaticals at certain periods of time throughout their tenure, um, largely to, um, either write or research. They can kind of get away from their normal routines and yeah. class loads to go and do something, um, that's part of their, their field. Um, there's also a long history of sabbaticals being granted to pastors, um, primarily because of sort of the personal and emotional toll that pastoring can take. There's a sense to which being a pastor, depending on the situation, can be kind of a 24-7 responsibility. And um, there's a lot that goes into what a pastor shoulders from, you know, teaching every week to counseling, to leadership, to fundraising, to um, conflict management. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of emotional um, burden that can be a part of a pastor's life. And so um, there's a history of pastors being granted a break from that. And there's essentially two expressions of that. Sometimes it's uh, research or educational in nature. They're going off to write a book. They're going to go off and do some studies or they're going to go off and do some kind of research related to the church or to their role as a pastor or their life as a Christian. Um, and then there's also a kind of a, a model of just letting the pastor go away for a while and, and rejuvenate and rest. And so mine was largely the, the second one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people just the teaching aspect of your side after having done it one time i like i knew that it was a necessarily a burden but uh, a box every week before i prepared and taught a message but like to have to have to think deeply and spiritually about both your message but then also have the energy and time to think deeply and spiritually about anything else as far as your church goes, right. if you're leading it like you are, I can see how that would be very difficult to do with every single Sunday feeling like you have to, you know, to teach a spiritual lesson that's meaningful, impactful in people's lives, and then also do the other. Yeah. Like yeah. that alone. One of the things that I say from time to time is, you know, Sunday comes every four days. Mm. Because you no sooner finish one message and you're already at work on the next one. Yep. And um, the way that we do it, I literally have things to turn in by Wednesday or Thursday that essentially means my message is complete. And um, while I love to teach and that's sort of my forte, um, just a constant demand of churning out hopefully helpful and thought-provoking messages is is a challenge and so um for the first time it was nice for me to take a break from that i yeah. i typically don't resent that part of my responsibilities um the only time that i might the the, the point of where there might be some resentment is that you're trying to churn out these you know 
challenging, thought-provoking messages, but you're also having to, you know, do a hundred other things, manage the staff and provide leadership and counsel people and, you know, do pastoral care. And so it just is, it's, it's hard sometimes to keep all those balls in the air. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that I think is probably, it is hard to leave work at work in, I think, ministry work to whereas like other people may, and I'm not necessarily comparing, but just to kind of give an idea, like other people might have very stressful times throughout, you know, their different, whatever it is that they, they do for their job. But oftentimes you can leave those things kind of there and you're not having to, it's not also intertwined like with your personal faith, which is easy to do without work. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it, it can be burdensome in that way if you're not very careful, which I think that you've been better than most pastors. I think that I've even heard or seen at, you know, making those boundaries between the two, but that comes from wisdom, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I, I had to very, um, uh, deliberately create some boundaries a number of years ago. Um, I recognized that the 24 seven stress of trying to attend to everything was taking a toll. And so I made some decisions about what expectations I would place on myself. Then there's just that whole expectations that other people place on you that you don't sure. get a choice of, <laughs> but, um, especially in that line. Yeah. You get, there's, there's expectations on pastors that most people can't begin to understand. But, um, yeah, so I was feeling kind of soul weary. That's what kind of prompted the sabbatical. And I was starting to feel some ways that I hadn't felt in a long time about just sort of the normal routines of my job. And um, really through the counsel of my wife encouraged me to take a break. And, and again, I'm glad I did. And uh, it was very helpful. Well, good. Yeah. Good stuff. Good, good again, to be back here and good to be back having this conversation with you. Yeah. No, I, I said this during my message, but I really have missed this every week. Just because it is, it's the time where I get to, you know, think more deeply and have a conversation. Well, I guess I can think deeply all the time, but there's something different about actually having a conversation where you're both thinking deeply yeah. about a topic. And not that me and my wife don't get to do that, but it's just different when well, yep. you're a lot wiser and have a different perspective than, you know, me or her have. So, so you've mentioned it. Not everybody's going to know because not everybody who listens to the podcast attends or participates in the life of our church, but you just completed your very first message on a Sunday morning at Cibolo Creek in my absence. I did. You did an outstanding job. Well, thank you, sir. I've watched most of it and um, I was very, very impressed. And I was, as I was telling you, we went to lunch the other day. Um, it wasn't. In my mind, it wasn't a typical 25-year-old's very first message at church. I thought it was, uh, it showed a lot of um, composure, showed a lot of um, dexterity or, or uh, understanding of your topic. And I thought you handled yourself really, really well and handled the content really well. So I was Thank you. proud of you. Wasn't heretical on your stage? No. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Always nice to leave our folks in good hands and not come home to a mess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you did sell me in your video. D don't burn the place down, which, which warmed up the audience for me. So yeah. that was nice. Cause yeah. they, they were laughing when I, by the time I got up there, it was funny. Um, I guess, well, it would have been that night. So Sunday, that Sunday that you preached, 
was the last Sunday that I had off before I returned. Yeah. And my wife and I went out to dinner that night, uh, just sort of celebrating the conclusion of the, the sabbatical and getting back in the saddle. And, uh, we saw some folks from church and one of them commented about how much they appreciated sort of the, the relationship that you and I share as, uh, partners in ministry and a, a bit of a mentor mentee kind mm -hmm. of relationship. And th they really thought that that was kind of a, um, warm way for us to have, you know, introduced you to the, the audience that morning and, yeah. and given you the stage. So that was good. Well, I think this podcast actually helped me feel that feel like I was going into a, um, much warmer reception. Like oh. I didn't have to prove myself as much. They okay. already kind of knew who I was. Yeah, so yeah. whenever I get up there and say, God doesn't love you how you are. He loves you despite how you are. Right. They're not going to be like, what? who is this guy? Who is this? They're yeah. like, oh, that's just Wyatt being Wyatt. <laughs> 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 you know, that's just his normal everyday self. Right. Um, but it did. It helped me. Yeah. Oh, because good. a lot of them, you know, they come up and talk to me on Sunday morning and say, hey, we like listening to the podcast. And so it helped me to feel like I was going into if, if, if they feel about how like us about how I feel about people like I listen to on a podcast that I know it's a warmer reception Yeah, because you know, yeah. the other person already, Yeah, you know, they know me, I don't know them, but they know me better, you know? Yeah. So that was nice. That was helpful for me to sure for me to do. Well, I think there's a lot of people in our church family who know you and know your story and really appreciate your participation in our midst, the impact that you have. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think Kristen, Kristen was saying that I need to draw on that for my next message. And so I was like, all right, yeah. I could probably piece something together for that. Good. Well, yeah. there will be a next time. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I, I enjoyed it. I, like I was telling you before, I really enjoyed it. And, um, now I just want to get better at it. So, well, you, you got a great first start. I, the I second time I'll tank though, right? No, you won't. <laughs> I'll just keep saying that until I do tank. And I'm like, I told you. There'll be a day you will tank. Well, yeah. But it won't necessarily be your second one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. All right. Well, jumping into our topic. Yeah. Uh, really a question. Um, you had mentioned this whenever you, in our staff meeting, and it's something that I've kind of been thinking about, and I'm sure a lot of people have. But the question that we're going to talk about today is, have we, we being Christians or the church in, let's just say America, have we made our faith uh, complicated? Have we overcomplicated what it means to follow Jesus? Um, if yes, then we can get into um, kind of why and how or how we've done that and maybe why we have. So yeah. what do you think? Yeah, the way you posed it to me originally is have we made it harder than it has to be? Or you've heard me say yeah, that we've made our faith harder than it has to be. And... Um, I think that's a bit of a colloquial expression as way where we describe things that seem to be, you know, maybe frustrating or annoying because of what we've done with something. Um, I think to be specific, what I mean by that is, have we made it more complicated than it needs to be? And even more specific, if I drill down into that, and this is, I do believe is true, we've We've made it all, it's so much busier than what I think 
God intended or what Jesus really modeled for us as Christians. So, um, lots of, lots of, uh, thoughts on why we've done that and how that's happened. Um, but I'm really curious and, and I, I just want to begin by saying, I don't know that I have this completely figured out. It's something that I'm suspicious of. It's something that I'm alert to, and I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out for myself personally. I'm trying to figure it out as a pastor who has influence in other people's lives. And I'm trying to figure it out as the shepherd of our church, because as I I think we'll get into a little bit later, I think the church is one of the primary culprits for creating this sort of complex, busy, stressful sort of understanding of what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And so um, I think there's a reason why the church does that, and that's really probably um, the best part of the discussion. Mm. Um, but but here's what I mean kind of initially is um, my understanding of, of both Old and New Testament, and particularly the teachings of Jesus, and I don't mean this to sound simplistic, but um, it's essentially what Jesus is inviting us into is a relationship. It's just have a relationship with me, me with you and you with uh, me with you and you with me. I, th- I think that's the foundational experience that Christ is inviting his followers to is a relationship. And I, I think most people understand that. It's just that we, we start adding to that relationship. And that's where I think it starts getting complex, busy. Um, you know, we've heard the phrase for years, love God, love people. Um, yes, I, I think that's the simplicity of it. But we keep wanting to try to fill that out. And in the attempt to try to explain it, we just start adding a lot of responsibilities and rules to what that means to love God and to love people. And I'm all for, how do I want to say this? I'm all for helping people. I'm all for educating and, you know, um, guiding people into love God, love people. It's just how we end up doing that. Yeah. Uh, the other way that you don't hear it said very often, but I, I think this is probably even the truer essence is trust Jesus and follow him. It's mm-hmm. kind of the essence. So what's the simple what's the simple expression of that rather than starting to add some kind of a long complicated list of what trust looks like and what following Jesus looks like? Um, I've I've always appreciated the verse in Micah chapter six, um, prophet. Um, the verse reads um, the sense that. God's asking, what is good and what does he require? Like, what's what's the most um, wholesome thing? What's good? What's right or correct? And what is it that God's really asking of his people? And he, and he just lays out three things. Do justly, which I interpret it as live a life of integrity. Be a true, truthful, honest, 
upright kind of person, do the right things in the situations of your life. Um, the next part is to love mercy, which I think is a fine joy in the compassion expression of love, mercy, and grace as you treat other people, and then to walk humbly with your God. And um, I think there's a real simple uh, nature to that is to remember who you are in relationship yeah. to God, to walk humbly and just go about your business as one who understands you're in a relationship with the eternal sovereign God. But it just seems like the church, particularly in the discussion of discipleship, it wants to start netting out what is do justice look like and what does um love mercy look like and what does walk humbly with your god look like and that's where the i think the list start getting very long you know this is years ago now um i was i partnered with a couple of guys who were looking to develop a discipleship curriculum and uh, we had a kind of a niche in mind um, because of some things that we were involved in. Uh, it was a discipleship curriculum for like executives, uh, working professionals, people in white collar jobs. And because uh, that was a, a sphere that we were engaged in. And, and the question was, you know, how do you equip these, you know, movers and shakers, these people of influence, um, how do you equip them to be followers of Christ in the workplace with the platform of influence and leadership that they have? And it was really interesting to watch that curriculum develop. And at first it began with these very simple sorts of um, priorities. And then I just watch it uh, balloon into this really long, long list of things that a good disciple of Jesus yep. would do. And so, you know, I, the, the first conversations or the original conversations were like, well, what do, what do these people need to understand about their faith? And what is it that would be like important disciplines that they would need to adopt in order to cultivate their relationship with Christ? And then what is it that they should do? What should be the, the priorities and pursuits of their life as someone who's following Christ? And it seems like every discipleship discussion I've ever been in, and I, I think there's, it's merit, there's merit to it. It always begins, well, they, they need to know how to study their Bible. And you're like, yeah, we should equip people to study the Bible. But it was interesting to watch it evolve. Yeah suddenly they were developing curriculum around like a master's level degree of being able to study the Bible. And I'm just like, okay, I, I understand that, but what are we doing to just teach them you know, kind of a foundational love and respect for the truth of God's word rather than turning it into some, you know, historical, grammatical, you know, deciphering and, and um, dissection of each of the verses that they read every day. It, it just, ultimately my observation was it became really burdensome. And the time that it would take for them to complete, you know, those disciplines of the study of the scriptures would take huge chunks of their day and their week. 
rather than just a simple understanding of a love and respect for God's word. Um, and then it was, well, we have to teach them to pray. And, and that got, you know, involved in like all the different kinds of expressions of prayer. And then, well, we need to teach them about confession. And so then that, you know, you dive down into the very complex nature of sin. And I was just watching the curriculum get <laughs> bigger and bigger. And, and the list included, you know, like, well, you know, church has to be an important part of their life and worship has to be, you know, an important expression of a disciple's life. And so then there was, you know, chapters on the church and, and your, you know, commitment to, you know, the, the body of Christ. And then, you know, community had to be a part, Christian community. So then the, the whole, you know, there's chapters on small group involvement. And then it was like, well, you got to know your spiritual gift. And, you know, there's giving and there's evangelism and there's, and where it kind of got really intriguing to me after I'm watching this curriculum just get bigger and bigger, it was, well, now we have to teach them about time management. And now we have to talk about physical fitness and health. And now we have to talk about financial management. Now we have to talk about marriage. Now we have to talk about raising mm. family. And I just watched what was intended to be sort of, um, you know, a, a path to helping grow uh, solid disciples of Jesus in the workplace to this you know, kind of master's level uh, study of all these different topics. And I'm not saying any of them are wrong. It just felt like it got really complicated. And I think my impression was, as we started introducing some of this material to uh, the folks that we were originally serving, um, you can almost see their eyes glaze over like, wow, <laughs> uh, that's, that's a lot to expect of me to master while I'm also trying to juggle 40, 50, 60 hour work week and, and a family and, and, and to be a good dad and to be a good husband and, you know, all the things. Yeah. And so I, I, it's just curious to me why we always end up making discipleship such a exhausting sort of pursuit. Yeah. And what, <laughs> What I love about the Bible is that if you want to dig into it to the degree that like you're getting every, you know, this, every single thing out of it, you can, and the, and, and it's there for you to get right. down to Hebrew words have matching numbers and those correlate to different things. <laughs> and it's like down to that level that no one just reading it would ever go. But if you know Hebrew and you know the numbers, it all correlates and it's, it's crazy, but you can just read it and do what it says correct which is beautiful right because anyone can pick it up read it and do what it says yeah. and and put their faith into what it says or, you, you know once they get there but you know what i mean yeah it's so things that have always intrigued me is that when you look at the primary audience that jesus was serving and i, I want to say this without getting into trouble <laughs> um they were largely a blue collar, uneducated, simple sort of person. Most of his audience were not educated, elite, elite kind of ruling class. Now he, he did talk to those people. He did address those people from time to time, but his primary audience 
were fishermen and tax collectors and, and a whole sordid lot of humanity. And, and he's making the invitation of the kingdom of God available to them. And I've always been intrigued with how at least American discipleship tends to make certain assumptions about who the audience is and how smart they are and how capable they are and how educated they are and how wealthy they are. And so I've always been intrigued with, you know, how does, how does basic Christian discipleship work for a person who can't read? Are they at a, they at a disadvantage to be able to follow Christ? And I, I don't think so. But again, American discipleship tends to be built on these assumptions that you have this level of uh, education or capacity to understand. And I go, yeah, but how does that work for really um, impoverished people? How does it work for somebody who doesn't have um, an education beyond maybe high school um, or even less? How, how does it work for somebody who doesn't come from a sophisticated elitist sort of family background or, or culture? It seems like that's where Christianity was actually bred. It seems like Christianity, the ground roots of it, uh, the grassroots of it, sort of began with those types of people. And yet I look at most of how the Church of America makes its appeal and how discipleship is often done. And it just seems like it's, it's kind of crafted around the high-powered, high-capacity person. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying, is that just part of us making it more complicated than it really While you were describing how it just started to balloon into this, you know, large curriculum and there's, all, you know, <clears throat> when it's supposed to be simple, it got super complicated. I started immediately thinking about how people who in their heads are people who will say that they want to be more productive or say, get more fit. They love all the hacks. Okay. Right. They love getting the right shoes, the, you know, doing it at the right time, drinking this before bed, drinking this when they wake up all, you know, they have 20,000 different things that they love, you know, they, yeah. well, they like reading into them, whether or not they actually do them, who knows? Right. But you know, rather than the one essential one, which is go to the gym or look, you're at a certain point, you're going to have to just sit there and do it. Right. Like you can't. There's nothing you can engineer that's going to make you necessarily want to do it. It's whether or not you were willing to make yourself do it. Yeah. Um, and so I immediately started thinking about that because it's like, wow, I think in what I, what I thought of whenever you said that we kind of engineer it towards the more sophisticated, high achieving kind of person. Right. Is that person who eats up like, well, that was my silver, that's my silver bullet to yeah. Yeah. growing with Jesus. Yeah. They're looking for the silver bullet, the right small group, the right class, the whatever. I've been listening to this podcast called Pints with Aquinas. It's Catholic. Um, and uh, But I love it. What's it called? Pints with Aquinas. Oh, Thomas Pints Aquinas. with Aquinas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pints okay. with Aquinas. Pints being just a yeah. mug of beer. Right. Because he's Australian, so a pint is just beer to them. Sure. But um, he had on this guy named Peter Kreeft, and I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's this professor and uh, philosopher. 
And he talks a lot about just the will. And I think Catholics are probably, Catholicism might be big on this anyways, but just you've been given a will. And he was like, well, how do you get better at praying? And he's like, you pray. <laughs> this philosopher who could outread, outtalk, outsmart every single person. Yeah. And his thing was like all the most simple things. Like you just have to do it. Yeah. And I loved that. I was like, you have this mastermind of, you know, you have this like master of thought, like heavyweight. Yeah. And he's like, you do it. You just do it and get better at it. Yeah. That reminded me, um, shortly after I turned 50, I went through kind of a time of personal introspection. And one of the decisions I made was it was long overdue for me to get into better shape. I was overweight, terribly, um, out of shape. And, um, but I challenged myself to do it without all the props. And so, uh, financially and just kind of the distribution of my time, I decided I wasn't going to join a gym. Mm. And so I decided I had to do this all by body weight kinds of exercises or things that I could create. And I started training for a Tough Mudder as kind of a, just an ambition and, um, preparing for a tough mutter without going to a gym and lifting weights, um, presented this challenge of just the basics, like just some push-ups and some sit-ups. And I had, I had some, um, uh, bricks out on the back of our house that hadn't been used in the building of our home. And I was like, okay, is there a way I can use these bricks. I had some logs from, you know, a fire pit. Can I just lift these logs, curl these logs, uh, just some real basic sort of things with, because I know my tendency is sort of what you were just describing it. Well, I got to get the gym membership and then I got to get all the shoes and I got to get all the right clothes and I got supplements and yeah, you know, get, get all the stuff. And what happens is Again, I'm not saying that stuff doesn't work. It's just, it becomes so complicated and it becomes so burdensome that, um, it kind of steals the life out of it. And you keep finding something else you need, <laughs> especially if you're not into it. You're like, well, I'll start, I'll start once I get my shoes in, I'll start once I get my supplements in and just keep pushing back the day that you actually have to start. <laughs> exactly. I just heard a comedian, he was doing a routine about. He bought, he brought home some chocolate milk and his wife was giving him a hard time. I'm like, what in the world are you doing with chocolate milk? We, we don't drink chocolate milk. And he says, but he was wanting some. And he said, well, I think I'm going to start working out. And I heard that chocolate milk was a good recovery drink. And, and she said, well, you don't work out. And he said, well, I might start. <laughs> <laughs> Always trying to justify having some chocolate milk uh -huh. in the house. But yeah, I just... I'm trying to, I'm not, I'm trying not to stand in judgment of what exists out there, but I am trying to see through it, at least for me, and to ask myself, what, what are some of the body weight exercises? What are the simple things that are really, really important to cultivating my relationship with Jesus Christ without it becoming this very complex and extremely busy sort of pursuit life. And that's what I was thinking about the fact that the church, I think is one of the worst culprits 
and sort of cultivating this fast-paced, demanding sort of devotion. And stepping back to think about why the church does that. This is just Paul Wilson's take on it, okay? This isn't scientific. This isn't academic. It's not highly researched. It's my ponderings. Your hunch on it. My hunch. My hunch on why the church um, creates this sort of frenetic pursuit of Jesus is I think it's ultimately a reflection of what's still rooted in a works-based salvation. Hmm. That I think that has such a grip on the human spirit that nothing could be free that I have to work to gain God's approval and his blessing and to stay in his good graces and to get him to love me. And so it's pretty American to think um, the faster I go and the more I do, the better, more successful I am. And so I, I think that works-based theology still drives so much of the message of the church. And, and the other note that I put here is that um, it, all, it often ends up feeling like all of this talk about all these things that you have to do, it often ends up feeling like it all exists only to prop up our denominational traditions, which are often steeped in performative expressions of work-based faith. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I think the church ends up creating this cycle where um, the church gets established, services and ministries start being created. Well, now we have to fund them. Now we have to staff them. Now we have to, you know, resource them. And to do that, we have to create a loyalty to them. And that loyalty ends up looking like really, really busy. Yeah. And you have to be involved in all the things and do all the stuff if you're a really good Christian. But if you dig down inside of that and get behind it, it ends up feeling like, well, you have to do that because, well, we have to keep this machine right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think I think there's something there to that. Um, I'm I'm definitely sure that what Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church, is not the classic local church organization that it has become in sure. the 21st century. Um, the first century church thrived on a pretty simple agenda, a pretty simple programming. Now, we don't know all the details, of course, but um, I can assure you it wasn't all the bells and the whistles that it is today. And, you know, I say that as the pastor of a church that has its fair share of bells and whistles. Sure. Well, and so here's two. It's weird because, okay, let me just tell you what my initial thoughts were. Sure. I see both sides of this. Okay. I've been in the meetings that have gotten so complicated that I'm like, why are we, what is happening? <laughs> and I'm just, I'm like, it just, it says that. Let's just keep it there. But it goes all over the place. And I've also been at the place. So 
that I think is probably rooted in that what you just described as well. We have to keep people coming. We have to keep fueling this thing. We have to, uh, and it might be in, in like what you said, workspace. I also see the side as somebody who's grown up to where everyone in my generation, I have half of my friends call themselves Christians and do nothing. And they think that they're like good. Yeah. And so it's like, they may need works. They may need some, some encouragement to be like, Hey, why do you think you're a Christian? Because you say it like, yeah. what is that? And so like for me, um, I recently, and, and it was, it was one of, that, one of those podcasts, the, the Catholics that kind of helped me look into this some, but it was like, you have, you have to, what about you makes you think that you're, that, that you love Christ? Like I'll, I'll ask myself, like, I, I say I'm a Christian. I know I'm saved and I know Christ loves me, but at the same time, do I love him? And I think that gets back to like what you were originally saying, like love God, love people. But it's like, well, do I love him? Like I'm, you know, living in that, that salvation and freedom that's given to me, but then I'm not doing anything. I'm not, you know, I don't pray regularly or I don't, I'm not reading his word. I'm not doing any of those things. And it took someone saying like, well, you like, what do you, you have, you have to do those things. Like what about you is living as a Christian if you're not doing those things, right. are you so sure that Christ will say, come my good and faithful servant, or is he going to say, oh, wait, I don't know you. And, uh, I think a lot of people in my generation will claim, you know, I can't do this. I can't do that or whatever, but they didn't do anything in the first place. Right. You know? Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. I think the subtle, um, part of that is comes down to the why you're doing those things. Yes. Because you can create a whole culture and a whole population of people who do all the things and check the box. Sure, sure, sure. And assure themselves that they're followers of Christ. Yeah. And then there's this whole other very kind of um, natural uh, response to a true understanding of God's grace toward you that it's not, I have to read my Bible to be a good Christian. I read my Bible because I long to know the heart of God. Yeah. And it's like, if I want to have a relationship with him, then I have to do things that right. curate that relationship. And so I think that's the dicey waters of discipleship yeah. is, I th and I'm going to assume good intentions on the part of, of all these folks who are working hard to create discipleship opportunities in the life of their church or in the lives of Christians is, it's they're wanting to create that heart that loves God and loves people and is drawn to his word and drawn to prayer and, and is, um, it's just a natural outpouring of this enthusiasm to want to, you know, share their faith with other people. And, and I want to serve because Christ calls me to serve because he served me. I mean, all of the, the right rich reasons for doing these things. Again, then there's the tension of the human heart, which is compromised by sin, and we want to turn it into a to-do list and boxes that need to be checked and the hoops I have to jump through. And I think that's where the real battle is, is um, 
how does my faith look without all the props of boxes to to check? I kind of noticed that a lot of churches, particularly those ones that get popular, oftentimes cater to the culture. They'll do things or whatever that is attractive in the eyes of the culture. And that's yeah. just a consumeristic mindset sure. that gets seeped into the church. Yeah. How do you feel about and this is like things to do or things that a church would do about not catering to the culture, but answering questions that exist within the culture. So like, for instance, I think that there's a real crisis of what it means to be a man and a woman or what it means to be a good husband or a good father or a good mother, or whatever. And, and marriages are obviously suffering. Men's like depression and suicide rate has gone up a lot. Guys don't know how to, like, what the, what does it even mean to be a man? Right. Most young people don't know how to answer that question. And, um, and women too, the same way. <clears throat> um, what do you think about the church answering those fundamental questions that I think the church has the best answer for, and it doesn't seem to be answering? Yeah. So in the New Testament, one of the ways the church is described as, is as sort of like the pillar of truth. Um, it is the, it's the community in which the truth of God um, exists. And I think it's the responsibility of the church to speak that truth. Um, culturally, we may, um, I, get, I get this sense, I get the idea of trying to attract people by using culturally relevant um, approaches. That was what I meant, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. But I don't think that that is the message. No, the message has to be, we're glad you're here, but this is the truth. And it's not about aligning the scriptures to the current trends of culture. It's about aligning culture current trends of culture to the abiding truth of the scriptures. Sure. And I've told you before, and I think we've discussed it on this podcast is the tension that's some of the tension I'm feeling and facing right now about how to handle the truth of God's word in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a part of me that's holding out in faith to the truth or to the, the scripture, the truth will set you free. And you may not like what I have to say, and it may not fit your contemporary, you know, morality or your politics or your ethics, but that's not mine to cater to. Sure. Mine is my responsibility before the Lord to teach you my best understanding of what I believe his timeless truths in the scriptures say. And then I... I have to not worry about your response or your reaction. I have to, um, we're talking about faith this Sunday. I have to live in the faith that the truth will set people free and sort of, you know, at times take it on the chin when people react to what I've said because it's difficult or unpopular. Um, I have to just sort of, I have to live in the confidence that that God will make that right. Yeah. Well, it, and this is somewhat going off, off of this track, but I do think 
the church has supplemented saying the hard things with doing a bunch of stuff almost. It's sure. like, just come do a whole bunch of stuff, but we're not going to like, we're not going to tell you. It doesn't seem to be really helping the problems that exist yeah. in a way. Um, marriages are still suffering. And this is, again, that's all problems of our culture, but I mean, the problems exist within the church too and within Christian communities. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, and you don't see a whole lot of churches and, you know, helping the issue really, not that the churches can or whatever in every scenario, but, um, for instance, whenever it comes to like how to be a man, why is it that an idiot like Andrew Tate is getting, you know, like I know that he's inflammatory and then he's not, he's, you know, he's whatever, but it's like, yeah. he's answering a question that there isn't a whole bunch of people answering, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I heard a quote by Thomas Sowell uh, a couple months ago Love that him. I just really liked, um, as I do a lot of his stuff. He said, um, if you want to help people, tell them what they need to hear. Yeah. If you want to help yourself, tell them what they want to hear. Oh, that's so powerful. That yeah. is so good. So good. And, and I think, again, I'm, I'm not putting any names to this, but I think at times preachers tailor and craft their message around what they know their audience would like them to say, um, what they would like to hear as a way to draw people. Um, but we're not helping them. We're simply, um, continuing the deception and the delusion that's brought them to the place of believing what they do. Um, you know, during my sabbatical, um, I committed to, reading through the life of um, Moses and primarily from a leadership perspective. And um, one of the observations I made is that, um, you know, he, God's giving uh, all these instructions about um, the tabernacle and the temple. And my observation was when God speaks, he speaks very specifically. And then the corresponding observation was, is that um, when you do not obey what God has said, consequences are extremely severe. And I, I was just thinking through that and sort of maybe principles or implications of what Moses experienced in that situation to my life as a pastor and the role that I play. Yeah. And, um, it just sort of, it confirmed for me that I, I have to be careful not to allow a culture, people to intimidate into stepping from the hard truth of God's word. Yep. I have to say, it. I don't have to be a jerk about it. I don't have to be insensitive. I don't have to rant and rave and yell and scream, but I can't be intimidated from speaking the truth, regardless of how unpopular it may be, regardless of the reaction it may provoke. Um, because, and here's the big because, because the consequences of ignoring what God has said is severe. Yeah. And it's really the ultimate expression of love that you have for people to say, I, I can't tell you 
that that's acceptable when I know, in fact, God has said it's not. Yeah, it's out of your love that you're telling them. And so out of love, because I don't want you to have to endure the serious complications and the chaos that will come with God's judgment on your life for that. It's out of love, I'm telling you, you must understand this. You must hear this. And um, so that was... That was very kind of confirming for me about kind of my responsibility as as a teacher. And again, I don't ever want to be the guy who's ranting and raving and yelling and screaming and just being insensitive and, and being a jerk. But I also don't want to be the guy who's just backpedaling away from all the hard stuff because I want my audience to like me because that's what souls quoted. If I want to, you know, help myself. You just tell people what you want because yeah. then, then they like you and they affirm you and they, it, well, it can't be about me. It has to be about God has spoken and he has said these things and I'm inviting you to consider conforming your life to this timeless truth. God's not stepping back from positions that he held thousands of years ago regarding morality and ethics and identity and, and all. He's not, oh, well, you know, the world's changed. It, it, that's, he's not. And so the timeless truths of God's word, I have to continue to speak into. Yeah. It's, it's interesting on both sides because I think both ways of looking at that, whether you're the person that's upset at something that's been said or you're the person who's refraining from say the, saying the things that are true. It's incredibly prideful because it's like, it, look, this isn't about you. Mm. This is about God and about what he said. This isn't about you. Yeah. And so we're, whatever that is, remove yourself from the scenario and uh, now handle it with care, of course. But it's not, it's not about you. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. I heard that somewhere, but yeah, it was incredibly helpful because it's like, wow, that is pride. Yeah. So going back to our original yeah. topic, I find myself, again, I've been preaching now for 30 plus years. Um, I'm still learning about how to do it and how to handle material and, and present things the best way possible. But I'm also just, I'm still examining kind of the patterns to my teaching. And I just wonder sometimes if I don't play into that, here's all the things that you have to do sure. in order to be a good Christian. And I like, there's something about that doesn't fit when Jesus says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly and take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy. My yoke is light. So uh, there's something there about the freedom, the grace, uh, the um, the joy um, of a relationship with Christ that isn't to become encumbered with this mantle full of all these things I have to do. And yet, like you just said earlier, there are things to do. Yeah. So making them kind of normal, healthy expressions of my everyday life I think that's that's the challenge of great discipleship. And I'm not sure that I 
have even figured out how to do that. It's like a lot of people will read the Bible and be like, dang, there's a lot of stuff in here that Christ wants me to do. But then they'll go to a church and they're like, oh my gosh, you've added to the list. <laughs> yeah, here's some more things. Here's some more things. But granted, whenever you do just look at the way that like, I think one of the hardest is a Sabbath in our culture. Yeah. One of the hardest for us to do. And it's like, okay, God, God's asking you to not work and just enjoy life. Heaven forbid. You know, and it's right. like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting topic because I think that's one of the areas we talk about Sabbath. And the next thing you know, books are written on Sabbath, yeah. just detailing all these myriad of responsibilities that you now have in order to honor the Sabbath properly. When really, I think the essence of Sabbath is rest. Do something that brings you rest. Yeah. Cause we're always trying to like, you know, in, you know, yeah, a whole book will answer the question of like, why is it hard to Sabbath? Yeah. It's like, okay, well, it's hard to stop. And in order if, but if you want to stop, it means you might have to like prepare for that stop throughout your week. That means just yeah. taking each day and doing your work that's responsible. Bef other than that, there's really not a whole lot to discuss. It's like, and then yeah, go hang out with people and have conversations that fill your heart. Yeah. And eat food or, you know, go to the gym, whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah. And, and pray, spend some time honoring God. Um, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of beauty whenever you get out of the minutia of. That's a good way to say it. When you get out of the minutia of all the stuff. Right. Yeah. Again, the, another, you know, common area where it starts to get so complicated is in serving. Mm. I mean, I really do believe that the high calling of Jesus for the life of his disciples was to be a servant to others. But we, we make that so involved. And um, I think there's just probably some really normal, natural ways that we can be a servant to the people that live in our home, the people who live on our street, people that we work together with or go to school with, but we, we have to make, you know, we have to make them all these big projects Yeah, and there's a hundred and one things to get done to make the project successful and then to coordinate all the details to get it done. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying at times it ends up becoming incredibly complicated. I would say that if we've confused people into thinking, okay, if Jesus came back and was like, Paul, does your church serve? Yes. On these dates throughout the year. Yeah. And you were like, that's the only time that they're serving. And you're like, well, they're busy. And it's like, well, but Jesus would be like, that's not sufficient, you know? Right. And so I think that if, if we're teaching people to only do things whenever we sponsor it, or provide it, I think it is wrong. Yeah. Probably. Well, it's, it's just short. It's not evil. It's, short it's just, yes. yeah, it's just not full. It's, yeah, it's not the fullest expression. What, what you would love to, I mean, this is very idealistic, maybe even naive to say this is, um, we shouldn't have to plan the project to that organization because this servant-minded, servant-hearted community of Christ sure. followers, they're already there. They're already addressing how to help that organization or how to help that person, how to meet that need. But 
we're always having to sponsor and organize the project in order for it to be, you know, to, to be done. And I think that's, um, I think, I think there's some insight into that about how complicated you make everything. Yeah. Quote came to my mind, but it's not fitting. It's not fitting. Nope. It's very <laughs> insulting to everyone, including you and I. It's not. Yeah. So, but, okay. but yes, I agree. Um, it's made it to where people have gotten to the point to where like with, if, well, if they do this thing, they're okay. And then they can divorce. I was going to say religious, but we don't like that word. The religious, well, I'll just say it, the religious part of themselves, uh, throughout the rest of the week, most of the time. Um, if they, they, yeah, it becomes that checklist like you were talking about earlier. Yeah. It would be great if the serving projects were just sort of, you know, ways to practice serving so that I recognized it and was capable of doing it without all the sponsorship. Mm -hmm. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. As, as being that you end yeah. up just looking around your community or your home or your neighborhood or your workplace going, oh, there's a need I, I could to meet that rather than, oh, there's a need, but I can't do anything about it unless the church sponsors yeah. some sort of thing. You know, a good example of just simplicity. I've been, I actually started going to the men's group the past two, two Mondays. Okay. Tom Patterson leads it. And I'm kind of, I've always been kind of weird about, different like small group scenarios that I've been in mainly because I have to one decide if I want to lead the thing or sit there. And then I have to ask myself, can you not lead the thing if it's for people like your age? And then I'm like, probably not. So I guess I'm just gonna leave the thing <laughs> and no, but not actually, but you know, help lead it or facilitate or whatever. And so it becomes like another thing rather than something to fill me up. Right. And I need something to help fill me up every once in a while. Every once in a while. I like how it's bad. If we say that we feel bad saying that. Like as the person working at the church, how dare you also need something to fill you up that isn't on your own time. Um, but yeah, so Tom Patterson and the men's group, they just read like a chapter of scripture every Monday and then they just talk about whatever they want. So it, it doesn't get, it's not like, like weird feeling that you can kind of get, like they all know it. You don't have to say anything. You're not going to be called on right. nothing. Not that I have a problem not talking, um, or talking. Not that I have a problem talking, but it's just so simple. And the, the conversations go, it just turns into a conversation like you and I really like. And, um, it's really awesome to see the hearts of the other guys and the guys that don't talk very much. All of a sudden they'll say something and everybody like looks, we were talking about this, you know, yesterday or when I recorded with Tom and it was just simple and I liked it and it, yeah. and it's been, and I see it as something that's doing really well. Oh, like at our thriving. church. Sure. And it's pulling in people like my father who like we, I argued with him for two hours of why something like that's even important. Yeah. And, uh, somebody who doesn't like getting, you know, in the past didn't like that kind of stuff, but it pulled him in just because of the relationships that he has with the guy. Yeah. See, I think, I think the real win of what we're seeing with our men's Bible study is the relational yes. community that's being created around that very simple format. Um, uh, yes, I know. Cause I've talked to guys, they love what they're learning, but 
I've talked to it's the, far more guys yeah. who they love the people that they're getting to build yeah. a friendship with that becomes, you know, comrades for life. So, um, yeah, that's the simplicity that I'm longing for is how does the church host the simple in a way that leads to the fruit of you know, friendships? Um, you and I, we share a, a certain heart for the dynamics of meals together. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, Acts chapter two, I think there's something, I think there's something sacred in that design of the early church getting together. Now it was out of necessity. They had to, in order to take care of one another because of the implications of their faith. I think they would have done it anyways. Yeah. But because it was, Jesus said to love one another yep. and that was a very loving expression. And what I would love to see is people just getting together for meals on a consistent basis so that the relationships deepen. And as the relationships deepen, what brings them to the table isn't, isn't the food anymore. They, they could eat cold cereal. It's that they're together. Yeah. And it's in the cultivation of that togetherness then that depth of relationship begins to form to where I can be honest and open, authentic with you about what's going on in my life. Um, that to me is, again, maybe naive, but that's what I would love to see is just the simple expression of people gathering together because they long for that connection with each yeah. other. I remember this is years and years ago when we still lived in Wisconsin. Uh, we were in a quote unquote, a small group. And all wonderful people. We loved all the people that we were in the small group with. And um, it had a format to it. It was just the same, we same way every week as we'd show up at whatever time it began. And we usually began either with some kind of a meal or dessert. It was just largely just sitting around in the kitchen eating. Yep. And then inevitably you could just sort of see the, the leader of the group, he'd you know, sort of take the posture. He's like, okay, guys, we're going to go on down to the den now and start our study. And it would just change everything. The whole mood would change. And it's not like anybody was resisting the study part. It's just became very kind of um, plastic and formal. And it just didn't have the same warmth as it did in the kitchen. And I remember my wife and I talking about that and, and, and she, she's got such a pure heart. She just, I remember her saying, I just wish the whole evening was like it was in the kitchen because that's when we were real with each other. When we get down there, we're, you know, what did you put for number three? What, what answer did you write for number five? And, and she said that honestly isn't quite as enriching to my spiritual journey as us sitting in the kitchen, having real life, real life kinds of conversations. And at times praying for each other in very kind of natural, comfortable ways that wasn't predicted or prescribed by the agenda for the evening. And it's, that's, that's the thing I'm trying to figure out. That's the secret sauce I'm trying to make sense of is how do we, create church and how do we create 
discipleship without it becoming just a master's degree of you know material that you have to somehow um, ma- um, yeah, master in order to be a good disciple of Jesus. Let's just stop asking people to come to stuff and instead invite a family or two over for dinner. Let's do it. I'd be down for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's an old quote and this isn't exact, but I've heard, I've heard things like, you know, why, why would you travel across the world to like Asia when you won't even cross the street to tell your neighbor about Jesus? (laughs) GK Chesterton has this part about the beauty of staying in a place and how, look, the real diversity is your neighbor because you don't get to choose them. Oh, but yeah. if you go wherever you want to, it can be in a completely different country. You chose it. You chose the people you're going to be with. But mm. the true diversity of people and yeah. granted different pl- pl- places are different people. But look, the, what he was saying was, right. was, yeah, like you won't even go across the street. Even if you do leave, you're still just choosing yeah. what you want. I love that. That's yeah. kind of connected. And so <laughs> that's, that's the simplicity that I'm yeah. longing for is how do you raise up a community of Christ followers. I'm not saying they never go to Africa to, you know, serve people there. I'm just saying they also have an equal or greater passion for a concern for their neighbor, that they make the effort to share their faith with their, with their neighbor. Perhaps you start there rather than Africa. Right. But most people I'm talking 35 years of ministry, my observation is few people will cross the street as there are many more people who will go on the missions trip because it's, it's kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I go I, again, and I'm, I've been to Africa and I've been to India and I've been to Mexico. I've been to the places and I get that. And I love going to those things, but I have to ask, honestly, do I have the same passion and concern for the guy that lives next door to me, that I make the same sorts of efforts and priorities to serve and love him with the hope of introducing him to Christ? Yeah. Mm, That's good. It's a good summation of everything that we're kind of trying to say, too. Yeah, you know, I guess the way I'd wrap this up is... uh, um, I'm still kind of raw in my thoughts about this. I've been thinking about it for years. I just haven't come up with the solution of how do you create sort of a simple understanding of what it means to be in love with Jesus and to obey him in acts of following without then adding, as you said, a lot of minutia to that, that it ends up feeling like um, a project or a list or, you know, a master's degree following Jesus. Yeah. So if you get that figured out, Wyatt, let me know. Will do. Yeah. I don't think I've cracked the code by any means. Maybe it starts with dinner. I think it starts with dinner. And, And I think that if the church does anything outside of, corporate worship and teaching and putting on, you know, places for people to gather and doing some stuff. I think that it needs to really focus in on 
equipping and supplying people for the role that they have. I think that's something that they need, the church broadly needs to do better rather than throwing everybody in as one and where it just creates this huge thing. It's like, let's narrow it down to the role in which these people, which you're either one or the other in most of these categories, the role that you play and how to do that in a godly way. So you're talking like you're a father, let's equip fathers. Let's equip fathers. You're a husband, let's equip husbands. husbands. Or just men, women, and the roles that men and women can play. Mm-hmm. And then marriage too. I mean, if, if the family goes, so goes everything else. Right. Um, and so I think that I've been thinking about this a lot, that whatever the church does do, it should be very pointed to roles that their congregation are playing throughout their normal everyday life mm. outside of it's like, Hey, well, you're a man. Well, what does it mean to be a man and follow Jesus? You're a woman. What does it mean for be a woman and follow Jesus? I'm not saying that we split them up all the time by any means. Like I yeah. said, the corporate worship and all that. Yeah. But I think that'd be a good place to start. It's like, let's get those down before we start getting all weird and fancy. It's like, what are these people doing every day? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it isn't about you and I figuring it all out. Maybe it's about one of our listeners stewing on this in such a way that they start something that yeah helps. It's true. Or they email in and tell us how <laughs> dumb we are. We just need to do this. Exactly. And then we bring them on as our guests. Yes. And they educate us. That would be fun. <laughs> that would be fun indeed. All right. Well, as always, and well, actually not as always, it was good to be back. Yeah. Good to, good to see you again in this format and have this discussion. Thanks. Indeed. Yes, sir. And we'll see everybody next time. We hope you enjoyed this presentation of Cibolo Creek Community Church. If you did, please consider supporting the ministry of our church. Your donations make a difference. To check out more resources or to share a gift, please visit us at CibeloCreek.com. Thanks for listening.